0: Some of us are too excited about this name of the series. You're already feeling let down. Some of you are feeling very nervous. Uh, I know it's scary to talk about money at church. And so I'm just gonna say, off the bat, this series has been my dream for several years because I've always wanted to do a teaching series on money that has nothing to do with the church wanting more of your money. I feel like most of the time we hear about money at church and we I don't know, the last time we did a series on finances at any level from the main stage here at church, but most of the time we go to churches and they're talking about money. It's kind of like the Nehemiah thing. We're doing a building project or we have some financial need or we wanna have people give more of their resources to God's kingdom work. And so this series is obviously going to intersect with our faith at some level, with giving to God's kingdom work. But this is not a series that's gonna end with a building campaign or a big ask or plates being passed. This is a series that is about Jesus' worldview crafting a teaching on finances and on money and on wealth and on capital of many different kinds. And you may have heard that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And in this series, we're gonna open up uh, Luke chapter 12 and we're gonna keep reading for the next five weeks for several chapters where story after story after story intersects our faith and our possessions, our faith and our capital, whether it's our financial capital, our social capital, our relational capital, the way that our faith intersects and our worldview that comes from Christianity intersects with what's in your wallet and mine. Um, So to do that, we're gonna look at Luke chapter 12. So you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 12. I'm gonna tell you two things. One, I'm gonna tell you that money is spiritual. And so this is a spiritual topic we're gonna talk about. But I'm going to start our Luke 12 teaching today with a question that is very unspiritual. And here's the question. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you won the lottery? I had a friend who was consumed with winning the lottery, like consumed, like Excel spreadsheet consumed with winning the lottery. Remember one time we were together, a few of us, and he felt compelled to pull us, his friends, into the same room and open up the Excel spreadsheet and say, guys, I just need to do this for accountability's sake. the the Powerball is like super high tonight, and if I win, I need you to know what I intend to do with the winnings. And so he took us through the taxes and the giving and his family and his extended family, and then he took us down to the bottom and said, look, your names are on here too, so if I win, you can expect 80,000, you can expect 80,000, you can expect 80,000, right? And we are thinking, this guy is crazy. Because the odds of winning the lottery are like the odds of winning the lottery, right? That's why they have that statement. But that said, have you ever thought about what you'd do if you won the lottery? I remember when I was a kid, there was the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. I don't know what a publisher's clearinghouse is, but all I knew as a kid is that these commercials would happen, someone would knock on your door with a giant check and a bunch of balloons, and they'd give you all this money. And I always thought, what would I do if I won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? You might be too spiritual to think about those things. Right? but you might have your own sneaky way of thinking about it, right? whether what's gonna happen if Bitcoin really pops off, right, or if this AMC stock, or GME, right, or my leveraged funds, or just my normal retirement earnings, right, or what's gonna happen if my business takes off, or what if I got that promotion, or what if the bonus came this year, or what if my rich uncle kicked off and I got a big check. Right? Many of us have some way of daydreaming about what would happen if we got rich and how we would get there, and what we would do when we got there. I think this is part of our cultural consciousness. I read a book last week. I don't know if I recommend it, because it was creepy. It was called A Simple Plan, about this kid who found $5 million on a downed plane and had to decide what he was gonna do with the money. And you kind of watch him spiral out of control as this consumeristic impulse like led him into the heart of darkness, right? That's not what we're gonna talk about today. But today we are gonna talk about how, how riches and wealth and things intersect with our faith. Because I will say right off the bat, as we look at the teachings of scripture, there is nothing wrong with being rich, with getting rich, with having loads of resources, right? We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that God showers down blessings on some righteous people and some evil people too, right? But everything we have is a gift from God. And so we are thankful when he puts anything into our hands But I think we also need to admit that we live in human bodies and we live in human-made cultures where we're pretty consumed with money and stuff and accumulating more money and stuff. You know, in Jesus' day, the average household was like a little hut with maybe a couple of like keepsakes in it. People might have a spare change of clothes so they can wear something while they washed their other clothes. We've come far since that moment. The average household today has 300,000 items in it. And I haven't heard anyone say that they have enough (laughs) that I've talked to. If you're an Amazon delivery driver, you probably know that we have this consumption with getting more boxes on our porch, day after day after day. The average woman has four times the clothes in her closet than her grandmother did. I don't know why you're laughing, that's just true, right? <laughs> and yet there's something in us, and it's not like it's like, okay, good, I finally have enough clothes, right? I finally have enough things. It's like there's this game we play where we just need to have more of it. You know, I read this convicting, interesting quote by this French author, Tana French, or no, this author, Tana French, this week. I don't know if she's French. It would be a great last name if she was. She said this. She said, our entire society is based on discontent. People wanting more and more and more, being constantly dissatisfied with their homes, their bodies, their decor, their clothes, everything, taking for granted that it's the whole point of life, never to be satisfied. If you're perfectly happy with what you've got, especially if what you've got isn't all that spectacular, then you're dangerous. You're breaking all the rules. You're undermining the sacred economy. You're challenging every assumption that society is built on. She paints this picture as the dangerous insurrectionist person who finally says, you know what? I'm content with what I've got. As we turn to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus was one of those people who seemed to not have that I need more stuff gene baked within him. He was the one who seemed to pursue downward mobility. He didn't need a house, he didn't need stuff. When he died there was no one fighting over his possessions besides the shirt off his back literally was what they were fighting for. That's all he had, he took it to the grave. He seemed to be out of the rat race, right? He says, I've got no place to lay my head and he seemed fine with it. And so either he learned the secret of something we haven't learned yet or he was just wired differently. We're gonna look at his teachings on on money over these next several weeks and and start to wrestle with how we can kind of release our grip on some of these things. Because even as I'm talking about the example of Jesus, a lot of you are nervous, like, oh no, he's gonna call us to sell our possessions and give to the poor, right? Because Jesus said that a lot, especially when he talked to rich people because he saw the way their hearts and their hands gripped around their possessions. I would say that Jesus was not primarily concerned with you selling all your stuff, but primarily concerned with you getting your hands off of your stuff and your eyes off of your stuff so that you can open your hands to him and his purposes and the life-changing power of putting him first and your stuff second. And so we're gonna read a passage in Luke 12, I told you we'd get there today, that kinda has two parts, right? There's a parable that makes us nervous, it's about a guy who makes so much money that he can retire, then he retires, then he dies, then Jesus calls him a fool. And yet, maybe you've never noticed this before, this parable itself is a response to a couple of kids who are arguing about their dad's money and the inheritance that they believe is rightfully theirs. So there's a lot going on here. So I'm just gonna read it, then we're gonna talk about the parable of it. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And someone in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, and I think this was his tone of voice. He replied, man, who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. If you're a note taker, I'm gonna give you three things that we see in this parable. And then I'm gonna give you an activity that you can wrestle with to see how you're supposed to apply this parable to your life. And so if you wanna write stuff down, you can. If you'd rather like take pictures, I'll duck and you can take pictures behind me. But the first thing that we see about this parable is that this parable is about a man who was filthy rich. Let's just name it, he was filthy rich. I know they say that if you've got a a car in your garage and a television set in your living room, you're among the top 1% of the richest people on planet Earth, and that is true, right? So most of you are like, I don't have a garage. You're still filthy rich, right? We're all filthy rich here in the States, but at the same time, this parable is about a man who is like filthy, filthy rich. Now I asked somebody the other day, what would you do if you won the lottery? And he said, tongue in cheek, he said, I think I would build a rocket ship that goes to space and I'd invite rich billionaires to go to space with me. I thought, wow, that's the Elon Musk story. I get what you're saying here, right? That's filthy rich in our minds. We're not filthy rich in our minds. But to the minds of Jesus' audience, this rich man was filthy rich, you know, I said before, most people had a hut and some stuff. This guy had land, he had property, he had a staff, he had a, enough land that enough fruit could come from his crops that he never had to work again after a single year's gain. This was not the normal person in Jewish society in the first century. This was a man who was an archetypal caricature of like, okay, if I made it, maybe someday I would be wealthy like that guy was. Wealthy, He is filthy rich. We know he's filthy rich because he has a moment in his life that enough money comes his way that he realizes if I just take this money and put it somewhere safe, I will never have to work ever again. Right, this is a number that a lot of people res- refer to in our own lives as his like financial freedom number. He hit that number that he got across that finish line and realized, I'm done. I don't have to have a crop next year. I don't have to have a farm next year. I can just live off the proceeds, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. I'm set for life. And so in the spirit of applying this parable to our individual lives, I wanna ask you a probing question you don't have to share with anybody else. You don't have to write it down if someone's looking at you. But Here's the question. How much money would it take for you to be done working forever? And what's that check gotta say on it for you to say, you know what, I'm set. Four trillion dollars, okay, wow. You might want to meet with a wealth manager, because I don't think it has to be that high, if that's your goal there. but. Four trillion, great. Some of you don't, yeah, I mean, you can, I don't care. But $125,000, you might say, uh, $4 million, right? Some of you do this math all the time. You're watching your accounts. You're like, I just want to be done working. Once the number hits here, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm storming out. And here's how I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to get to that number. I want to retire, right? This is a guy who made enough money that he crossed the finish line where he realized he could retire, right? So what's the number for you? In the series, we're gonna get real tangible with with how to apply the teachings of Jesus. And so we kind of have to start with a spot of how much would it take for you to be in the spot where you have to wrestle with life the way that this man had to wrestle with life? Because we do live in a culture where where many of us get to a spot where we decide, or sometimes it's decided for us, I'm done working. I'm gonna live off this social security check and this 401k or this, this Roth IRA, this traditional IRA, all these different these ways of vehicles towards retirement, right? We can get to that spot. So what's the number for you? This story is about a man who was filthy rich, he was set to retire. And we do have to lay the foundation that as you read the scriptures, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? If, if you're someone who's thought about Christianity and money before, chances are you've crossed paths with Proverbs 13:22. It says a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. You gotta pair that with Ecclesiastes who says, but be careful, because if your kid's an idiot and squanders your money, what's the point? Right? But a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I love even more what Proverbs 11.10 says. It says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. My Pastor Tim Keller talks about this in Manhattan all the time. That this, this concept that when good godly people get filthy rich, everyone's excited because it benefits everyone. They give more to charity, they start more nonprofits, they employ more people in the workforce, they give more money to folks who are disenfranchised and disadvantaged in the society. When rich, godly people get more rich, society gets better, right? And so this guy, nothing wrong with it yet. He gets filthy. it's the first thing we see now if you want to get filthy rich you're still okay right second thing we see in this passage this is where it it starts to get a little bit more like close to home the second thing that we see in this parable is that the man in this parable can you put on the screen because i forgot what it was uh not that one keep going keep going after this one this parable is about a man who didn't actually make any of his money and you may not have noticed this right because you're like wait what are you talking about Look at very carefully the way that Jesus describes how this man got rich. This is Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 16. Jesus says it this way, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. It doesn't say the labor of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He didn't say a certain man hustled and made a ton of money. He didn't say a man had a good year and planted wisely. He said that this man's ground produced a crop. You know, one of the ways that we have to understand this parable is wrap our minds around what it would be like to live in, a, in a, an agrarian system like the folks, a lot of folks did in Jesus' day. Where really, you read the other parables of Jesus, you can tell that in a lot of ways, the amount of money that you made was kind of this mysterious thing right? Remember the parable of the sower? This guy goes out and just sows his seed. He throws it on the dirt. He doesn't know what the seed's going to do. He doesn't know which of the seed is going to fall on the path, which is going to fall on rocky soil, which is going to fall amongst thorns and thistles. He's hoping that the majority of his seed falls on good soil and yields an abundant crop, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know if it's gonna rain, right? They don't have sprinklers and all that in the ancient Near East. He doesn't know if he's gonna get water to hydrate his crops. He doesn't know if there's gonna be a drought or a fire or a locust plague. All he knows is I'm gonna take these seeds, I'm gonna throw it on my dirt, and I'm gonna pray to God that God gives me what I need to provide for my family. And so this man, who had a lot of dirt and a lot of seeds for that dirt, threw his seeds on that dirt, and for some reason... God saw fit to give him a yield that was unbelievable, like unmistakably divine in inspiration. And so I think a reminder we have to give to ourselves when we think about our wealth, our stuff, our money, is that, this is all the scriptures teach us, right? Everything we have is a gift from God. And there's been moments in my life, I'm sure there's been moments in your life, I've talked to a few people today who've shared moments with me where, you just realize that the, the whatever you got in your hands was not because of anything you did, right? Which is a, a refreshing thing to remember because a lot of times we get consumed with our work, right? We wanna hustle, we wanna go to school, we wanna sell, we wanna do whatever you're doing, we wanna hit the pavement to make the money and we feel like everything's on our shoulders. But every once in a while, God reminds us, either by having the lazy person working next to us make more money than us, or all of our labor go in vain, or, or us seeing a, a supernatural gift come our way, that we were reminded that, you know what, I think God actually has more to do with this output than I even do. And my wife and I have a couple of stories of God's miraculous provision in our own lives. I've told you a few of them. One of them was 10 years ago this month. Uh, we were... Uh, living here, renting a place in Castro Valley, and uh, had three little kids at home, and started to outgrow our place, and started to look at the cost of rent 10 years ago, and think, like, we can't afford to live here anymore. What are we gonna do? And, and so we floated out there, we should buy a place, right? And if you ever thought this thought before? It's a humbling thought when you actually do the research, right? And so we go to the realtor and say, hey, we are wondering what it would take to get us into a place, because rent, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, well, show me your whatevers, and we show her the whatevers, and she's like... Um, you could buy a place, um, do you want me to show you the types of places that you could buy with the amount of money that you guys have and that kind of thing? And we're like, yeah, of course, let's see it, right? And so they weren't all rat-infested, not all of them, right? But (laughs) they were all some type of fixer-upper, right? Too small for even a family of five at that point gross, yucky, scary, dark, mildewy, yucky places, right? And we're like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. What are we gonna gonna do? And so, um, you know, the last place we look at, it's like a place that's big enough, but it was like in a lot of ways the scariest of all, right? Like no joke, every time we visited this property, someone got hurt and bled. First time we walked in the backyard, Jessica, not Jesus, Jessica stepped on an underground like yellow jacket hive or something and got swarmed with bees, one inside of her hair, and stung her inside of her scalp, right? Next time we go into this old shipping container and the rats scurry out, right? There was these thorns on all of the bushes that were making our kids bleed. It was crazy, right? Crazy. And, and we're like, well, we can afford this place? She's like, yeah, no, this is actually a pretty high above your limit, Right? <laughs> This place had recently sold for a quarter of a million dollars more than we could offer. It had recently listed for 100,000 more than we could offer. And we were smart enough to be like, well, we're not going to offer anything we can't pay, right? And so we're like, well, what if we just offered what we can afford? And the realtor's like, well, that's not how things work, right? Because they won't take that. And so I'm like, well, I just do it, right? So, so she slides this like low ball offer over the, across the table and The listing agent is like, hey, the bank owns this place. Like, they're not gonna take this. Like, it's just not gonna work. We're like, get some more money from these people. She's like, trust me, they don't have any more money. Uh, And so, like, we're just gonna slide it your way and see what happens, right? And we're praying. We, like, pull up in front of the house every day with our kids. We're praying that God gives us this, like, rat-infested heck hole, right? Uh, I've got pictures I can show you. And it's nicer now. Uh, And so... The listing agent's like, "Oh, okay, but we're gonna have to counteroffer." She's like, oh, "Of course, you have to counteroffer." So this is where the miracles start. She pushes back a counteroffer, which was our original offer plus a check for twenty-five thousand dollars in my pocket at the end of the sale. And I'm like, "This isn't how math works. That's not how." You're a very bad negotiator, right? And she's like, no, this is don't get too excited. It's a bank-owned home. The bank's never going to accept your offer. But if we just throw some other stuff into it, maybe it'll start, like a flare, start chipping away at all this other stuff. And maybe they won't notice that you lowballed them so bad. Like, okay, do whatever you want, right? Work your magic, right? We don't believe in magic, but work your magic, right? So she takes it to the bank. And the bank just botches every aspect of the thing. They don't call anyone back. They finally say yes to the the crazy offer. and then they're like, we need to look into it. They forget to look at blah, 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 blah. Months go by, six months, eight months go by. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves with the keys in our hand to a fixer-upper um, and a check for $25,000 in our pocket. And we are walking to this place. Our mortgage was cheaper than our rent was at our old place that was the rent we could afford. And over the next 10 years, it's worth four times more than we paid for it now. And and so we did not decide from that that we were going to host a class on how to manage and invest your money wisely. (laughs) Instead, the first thing we did was Jessica went up the street to her parents' house, found a piece of wood in their backyard, and stenciled on it a verse from the book of James that says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Lest we forget, we didn't buy this house. God bought this house for us, right? And so we went in there, no furniture, right? We skirted some rats away. There were no rats inside the house house. It was all outside, but, and and we put this thing up on the mantle as our first piece of furniture, just to remind ourselves a couple things, right? One, God bought this house. Two, if God gave us this house, and this is a biblical word, he gave it to us as a stewardship He entrusted something to us that we could never get on our own into our hands so that we might use it, we're thinking, for his kingdom work, right? To raise Christian kids in this house, to invite the youth group to this house, right? And make them sign waivers first, right? To uh, use this place. And we started to see the vision of what God could do in this property to use this place for his kingdom good because obviously he put it into our hands, And if he was the one who put it into our hands, then obviously he put it into our hands for a reason, right? And so there's some freedom in realizing that whatever you have, whatever money you have in the bank, whatever furniture you have in your place, whatever living room in your house, or the car that you've got, or the relationships, whatever it is, whatever God has put into your hands, he's put that into your hands. And if he's put it into your hands, he's put it into your hands, so that you would use it for his glory, for the good of the community, right? Whatever it is, for his kingdom purposes, right? This story is not merely about a man who is filthy rich. This story is also about a man who God gave him what he has. And so as we start talking about what God would have us do with whatever he's put into our hands, we've got to think through that lens of it. God put it in there, right? And so bring it back to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? Right, you could read the scriptures and kind of learn about biblical stewardship, this concept of some people take a tithing mentality and say, you know what, God wants me to take 10% of this and invest it in his kingdom work and live off the 90, great, right? Others of you are like, no, 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 I'm going to take 100% stewardship, like it's all his. And so God, what would you compel me to give towards this, towards that, towards myself, towards my kids, towards my mortgage, right? Becoming a money manager of the Lord's is actually a freeing endeavor after you take your fingers off your own stuff, lift your eyes onto Jesus, and say, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this stuff? And part of the reason I want to do this series is just to open the door to say, it's not like he's saying, you just got to write a giant check to your church with all of your money, like sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. He says that sometimes, he says that even in this passage a little later, but he says that primarily to teach people to take their grip off their money. And then start a conversation with him around God. What would you have me to do with what you've entrusted into my hand? And so, three things: one, this parable is about a man who was filthy rich. Two, this parable is about a man who didn't earn any of his money. And three, this is where it, like gut punch. This parable is about a man who thought he had more time on the planet. Now, God does not call him a fool for getting rich. Jesus doesn't even call him a fool for, for wanting to retire. I and mean, when we realize why Jesus called this man a fool, it's found in verse 19 and 20. The man says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And we've all heard these stories, right? I was talking to someone today who had a friend who was so excited about retiring, he's gonna retire early, here are all my plans, right? And then he dropped dead at 49. I was talking to somebody last week who said, I had somebody at work who was just so sick of work, could not wait to retire, was so excited to spend life with his kids, his grandkids, right? And didn't get his first retirement paycheck before he dropped dead of a heart attack. Now, this doesn't just happen to fools, right? Death happens to all of us. And a big part of the the parable is realizing that none of us have control of when we live and when we die. And so we have to be careful about the plans that we make, like the book of James says. Don't be the person who says, today or tomorrow I'm going to do this or that, because who knows how long you have. This has been a sobering, reflective journey for me because you guys know this. My my dad passed away pretty suddenly just four weeks ago, yesterday. Young, a year into retirement, was backpacking last the week before, and then came home, just felt sick, and was gone. And, you know, in those moments, you start reflecting on, like, okay, what do we do with our lives, our mortality, and kind of finding significance in anything. And so I'm trying to rack my brain and think, what was the last conversation that my dad and I had? And so it was actually on text. Uh, He texted me on the way back from his backpacking trip. That was, like, the last thing that he did. I asked him how it was. He loved it. And... um, So as he was reflecting on the type of life he wanted to lead, he was thinking about his grandkids. And the last thing my dad said to me over text was, need to plan a trip with your boys next year. And I said, probably the most heretical thing I've said in a while, I said, for sure. When next year was not sure. Next week was not sure. Four days later was not sure. I think part of wrestling with our own finances and our strategy and our stewardship needs to include wrestling with our own mortality. That if you've got a plan to invest your money in great things later, there might not be a later. You fool. Tonight, your very life will be demanded from you. According to this parable, foolishness is planning to spend money that is not yours on a future that is not guaranteed. Foolishness is planning to spend money that is not yours on a future that is not guaranteed. I love the question he asks. This is something you may have never noticed in this parable. Uh, God calls him a fool, and then he asks a question. He, he says, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who will get it? Who, who gets the money of a rich man when he dies suddenly? His kids. And where do we see the kids of a rich man <laughs> in Luke chapter 12, we see them coming to Jesus, squabbling over their dead dad's money. And so part of this parable is this idea of, are you sure the vision you have for your life is making a ton of money and then dying and letting your bratty kids argue over what's left? Now, as we transition into like, what are we gonna do about this? The question I wanna use to frame this time for us is a statement and a question. Statement, you are living on borrowed time with borrowed money. Question, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? That's a serious question. What are you gonna do? I think of the example of Jesus, right? Who I said before did not seem very concerned with being upwardly mobile. And yet Jesus did not just live an ideal life in relationship to finance. Jesus lived an ideal life in relationship with death. Right? Death can come at any time. You can make an argument that Jesus knew for sure when he was gonna die because it was a significant one, but don't miss the fact that all of Jesus' earthly ministry was designed to culminate in his death. He said no one can take my life, I give it up on my own accord. He had more control over the date of his death than anyone else in human history. But at the same time, he had his face set on Jerusalem and the suffering he would do there because Jesus designed a ministry life for himself that just got him closer and closer to God's ultimate purpose for him that would be fulfilled on the day of his death. So even though Jesus' death was the greatest tragedy in human history by a lot of accounts, As we know about the resurrection, it becomes less tragic, right? Even though it was a tragic, tragic day, it was a day where the rest of his life kind of bore fruit, it mattered. If Jesus did not die for our sins, we would still be in our sins. And so the teaching he did, the coaching he did, the healing he did would all be for nothing. The resurrection of others that he did if he had not died for the sins of the world. And so the learning from Jesus' life is not merely, right, learn to value money less like Jesus valued it less, but also learn how to live a life that when the day of your death comes, you will hear from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. So what are you gonna do? Right, your life is a stewardship. What are you gonna do? Someday you will stand before God and give an account, not just with your money, but primarily your soul. What are you gonna say to him on that day? Are you going to say, God, I trusted you with my life. I gave it to you. Your son forgave my my sin. His resurrection gives me life. Are you going to hear those words, well done, enter into your master's happiness? Are you going to hear those words? And if you're like, yes, I know Christ, then great, right? What's next? What are you going to do with the stewardship, the life he's given you? Not just your life, but your stuff, your relationships, all of it. Now we're gonna spend, for the next few weeks, as we talk about our, our financial capital, our social capital, our relational capital, and kind of start b- digging into the possessions that we have as a stewardship, I wanna give you guys assignments that are not going to feel spiritual, but they're very spiritual. They're not gonna feel like the type of thing that you should devote your quiet time in the morning to doing or a solitude day on Saturday to doing, but they're exactly what you should do because I believe that Jesus spent so much time talking about our worldview as it relates to our relationships and stuff and money and all that, because he wants us to change the way that we relate to these things. And so I'm gonna give you an assignment, uh, two precepts before I give it to you. One, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Let's just get it out there, right? If you believe what this parable teaches you, some of you can't help but be rich. You know people like that? It's like everything they do, they just make tons of money. They try to give it away, they get more, right? Part of that, that's how the Bible talks about with those who have done well, God's gonna give you more. Other times, the rain just falls on some people, right? There's nothing wrong with being rich. It just happens to us, and sometimes it happens to us as a result of hustling, hard work, education, but it happens. There's nothing wrong with being rich, right? Second thing we need to understand is that this passage does not teach us about whether it's okay to be rich or not. It teaches us how to be rich, now that's how the passage ends. It says, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So as we talk about being rich, we're gonna talk about what does it mean to be rich toward God and how does that affect our riches in this world? So here's the assignment. Right, write it down, take a photo as we put it up. Here's the assignment. I would love for you to spend some time this week and wrestle with the million-dollar question What would you actually literally do if you got that amount of money that we talked about would be that financial freedom number that you're anticipating getting? What would you do if you became filthy rich? What would you do if you had a giant check? What would would you do if you got a bonus at work that you're like, I could quit today? What would you do if you sold your company? I talked to somebody the other day who was at a party and a guy walked in and said, I just talked to my neighbor outside and he told me he just sold his company for two billion dollars, right? What would you do if that happened to you? Some of you can't fathom two billion dollars, neither can I, right? Use the amount of money that it would take for you to be financially free. What would you do? and then ask yourself the questions to really dig into the what would you do. Ask yourself this, what would God give you the green light to do for yourself with that money? All right, are you gonna be a tithe person? So you know what, 10% is God's, but 90% is mine, right? That's fine. Are you gonna be a person who says, no, I don't need two billion dollars, right? I'm gonna figure out what my salary should be as God's money manager, and the rest is his. Let's figure out how to spend it, let's go, right? What would God give you the green light to do for yourself? Second, how would you use this money to serve others? I love if you keep reading in this passage, Jesus kind of starts digging into the anxiety related to stuff, he says don't worry, God will give you what you need. And then he starts saying, hey, sell your possessions. Give to the poor, right? This idea of, instead of trying to grapple to get more, start giving away what you do have. Help those in our society. Help people in your family, in your neighborhood, the single moms, right, the disenfranchised, the someone who can't pay their bills. How will you use it to serve others? Third, how would you invest in God's kingdom work on earth? What would you do? What's your strategy, right? You can geek out on it, talk about donor-advised funds or stock, right, Or you can just be like, I wanna be someone who gives to charity, right? Whatever it is, how would you invest in God's kingdom work on earth? And then I wanna ask you the real million dollar question. How much of this can I do right now, right now? I'll tell you where this question comes from. After my dad passed away, had to write a eulogy, had to plan a memorial service, Had to, all that, I'm like, oh, I don't wanna do any of this. I, I just wanna get out of town and think about life, right? That's my personality, and so uh, a few weeks ago, I got out of town to think about life, and as I'm thinking about life, I had to think about, like, what do I really wanna do with my life, right? And some of these questions came up, okay? If I retired, if I had enough resources that I could do anything, what would I do, right? And so I'm like, okay, I'm called to be a pastor, I'd do this, but I'd do it for free, that's kind of fun, right? And I started writing some stuff down, like I'd, I'd add value to a local church. I don't have to be in charge, right? You could be in charge, I could just sit where you're sitting, right, it'd be great. Switch seats, I'll help out, I'll teach when you want me to, any takers? Uh, I could do that, I, I would invest in my family, I would do good in the community, right? I'd wanna help people financially, right? all these different things. I walked through this exercise and I kind of looked at this this game plan of like, when I get to the spot, when I'm 100 years old or 50 years old or whatever, and I hit that financial freedom number, this is what my life will look like. And as I stared down at it, I started thinking, most of these things I can do right now. I can invest in my kids right now. I don't have any grandkids, but if I had them, I can invest in them right now. I can help out at my church right now. I actually could do it full time right now. I got the time for that, right? I kinda need to do that to make the paycheck as well, right? I, I could do that right now. I got a spot to do ministry, right? And so then I started thinking like, well, could I actually help the poor right now? I'm like, I could if I really wanted to, right? Could I really serve folks in the community? Yes, right? Could I really help launch this or that or invest in this or that and start this charity, right? Yes, right? And I'm realizing this whole idea of someday I can do these things is so dumb because someday is not guaranteed, and most of these things I can do today. Right, that's stewardship, right? It's like, what do I have in my hands? God, what do you want me to do with what I have in my hands? All right, think about the day of your death. Right, This is where things like retirement accounts, and long-term health insurance, and life insurance, and all these things, aren't sinful things, because part of it is a plan of if I died, what would happen to all of this stuff? It's a plan that revolves around the idea that we have mortality in this life. But part of what we need to do is live in that tension of living today as if tomorrow is not guaranteed, but also living today saying, you know what God feels like, you want me to build a trajectory of my life, and sometimes it needs to go this direction. So I want to challenge you guys to take some time and wrestle through these things this week, because next week we're gonna have another thing for you guys to do related not to your money, but to your relationships, your social capital, your fame, that kind of thing. And then the third week we'll have an assignment related to your relational capital, the people, the relationships you have in your life, and the things that you value most. And so let's talk about money, let's talk about status, let's talk about relationship, and to do that, we're not gonna jump all over the Bible, We're gonna just keep reading through Luke chapter 12 and onward. Because Luke chapter 12 tells this amazing parable we read today. A few chapters later we hear another amazing parable about a man that Jesus does not call a fool but a man that he commends who gets fired from his job and decides he's going to spend his last day at work spending his boss's money, making a bunch of friends for himself so that he'll be set on the other side of his employment. And Jesus says, now that guy gets it, right? I don't get that, we're gonna talk about that in five weeks, we got some time to build up to that, right? But what we see in these two passages, in every passage about resources and money and wealth in between, is that Jesus is slowly trying to take our fingers off of our stuff so that we set our sights on him, and then we look back down at our stuff and say okay, now I'm energized to use this stuff to change the world, to invest in the future, and to invest in the people that God has put in my lives and the people that God wants to bring into his kingdom. So stick around for the series, but this week, get to work on financial planning devotionals, which might be new, but we'll do that. So I wanna pray for us, we're gonna respond in worship, and then we will send you into your week. So let's pray together. Father, I keep thinking of the book of James today, and even right now, another passage from that book uh, pops into my mind, that you refer to your scriptures as the perfect law that brings freedom. I pray for anyone who feels like they just gotta hit a certain dollar amount and find financial freedom. Let them find freedom today. Let them realize that your word brings freedom, that they are financially free today because they are free to spend the resources in their hands, however you call them to. Whether you call them to pay their bills and feed their kids or themselves, or you call them to launch a nonprofit or a charity, or you call them to feed the poor in our community, or call them to invest in your kingdom's causes, you've placed these things into our hands. We pray that you would give us a glimpse this week as we wrestle with you of why. Why have you given me this place to live? Why have you given me this car to drive? Why have you given me this family in my home? Why have you given me this boyfriend, this girlfriend, this time, whatever it is? Let us release our grip on our stuff and then look down into our hands and ask you the question, what do you want me to do with this? And we pray that it would bring us freedom. I pray for anyone who needs freedom needs freedom in their soul, needs to turn to you and find freedom from sin, from death, from whatever it is, that they would turn to you and look not just at your example or your teachings, but the the power of your death on the cross to forgive sins, the power of the empty tomb and your resurrection to bring newness of life. We pray that they would receive the power of your spirit as they turn to you and receive newness of life in this moment, and we pray that as they open their eyes to the fact that they've been transformed by Jesus, that their relationship with Christ would start to transform every aspect of their lives, including what we've talked about today. And that we would be people who, who live like the first and second century Christians said with their charity, their alms in their pockets, in their palms at all times, just looking for who you've called them to give it to. Pray that we would be free with the resources in our hands, that we would, in a sense, sell our possessions, give to the poor in the sense of being downwardly mobile, liquidating our assets to give more and more away. We pray that you would allow some of us in this room to be so wise and blessed by you that the day we die is the day we spent our last penny on your kingdom endeavors. Let us have nothing in our bank account when Jesus comes back, but let us invest it and see more human capital in return to the financial capital that you've given to us. We pray this in his name, amen.